Well, it is so good to see everyone. I know there's probably a lot of visitors from out of town. We're so glad you're here. Welcome during this Christmas season. Do want to take this opportunity because it is the festive time of year. Got the lights and people are doing a great job. Uh, the, the hand chime choir has been practicing for many weeks and months. It's nice to see some new faces on our worship team. I do want to encourage you with a few things during this time. Um, there are a lot of different organizations. As you think about the end of the year, there's a couple. I think this is the time of year when we, especially as Christians, tend to give a little more uh, for practical reasons because of just year-end bonuses and things like that. Uh, but also as we think about the birth of Christ and, and being more generous and giving, uh, not necessarily this organization, but I do know that this one uh, preaches the gospel. Uh, but a lot of, I found, Christian organizations are coming out with these gift catalogs. And what you do is you flip through and there are various things. This is World Vision. And so they have a specific ministry where they can give uh, specific items to different people. Uh, there, uh, you know, if you're going to give, I would encourage you to find a Christian organization that is actively sharing the gospel with the people they minister to. Some are doing good work, but they are not sharing the gospel. Uh, World Vision does. In fact, my wife worked for them, uh, volunteered for them when we were overseas on the mission field. And this gift catalog, uh, I'll put it on the back table after service. It's just fun. Uh, every year we have our kids flip through it and, and pick one thing. I think one of our boys picked the uh, 10 farm animals. Um, another picked uh, some something for clean water, things like that. Medicine, uh, help for women who have been trafficked. Uh, so there's a lot of various things that you can do. Commend this kind of thing to you, especially during this time of year. The second thing I want to mention is we are pretty full this morning, and uh, there's been some buzz because I think I offhandedly mentioned something in a sermon a few weeks ago. And so I do want to let you know that we are officially uh, but unofficially looking for our own building. What that means when I say officially but unofficially is you understand that uh, every day that you drive to work, you notice yet another building that wasn't there yesterday. Uh, the property, uh, real estate, is very much in demand in this area in the Central Peninsula. I do not want, for the sake of a, a building, we will not move to San Jose, for example, and lose most of you. We want to stay in this area, but I have heard, and you have heard, stories of the Lord providing um, just miraculously for different churches. Uh, we want to stay in this area. Uh, we will probably have a fight because uh, churches don't have to pay property taxes ever, and so we will have a fight with the government. Um, we will have a fight with city councils. We'll fight with neighbors who don't want us parking on their streets, but the reality is when the Lord wants us to have a building, He will provide. But we do need to put in the legwork. So I'm not saying that we will have a building within the next year or two, but we, uh, there are real estate agents who know we are looking. Our best bet is probably a church that decides to sell their building because then it's zoned for nonprofit. The city is already expecting that. So what does that mean? For you, it means to a couple of things. Uh, first is to help us Keep your ears open. Keep your eyes open for for sale signs, for churches you know that uh, are selling their building for whatever reason. But most importantly, secondly, is to pray. To pray for us, to pray for us not to get anxious or antsy, to be content, as I'm thankful that I believe all of you are continuing to meet in uh, schools and hotels. But also I would ask you to pray that when the time comes, how much you personally are going to be willing to give to our church to purchase a building. I know this is something we don't like to talk, to talk about, but the reality is, given our current savings and budgets, which is, uh, the, our savings is much higher than I know even much larger churches than ours is, uh, but we would need at least another $2 million to raise. Um, and what it looks like is we would probably need to raise that before there's any building in sight, so that when a building does come up for sale, we're not saying, oh, give us a year to raise money with our people. And so it's something to pray about, um, to see, you know, what the Lord would have you do in terms of helping us toward that end, with an understanding that we may do a building fund, 
And you may say, it's been five years where I made that big sacrifice. We're still in a high school. What's going on? And so just prayerfully consider that. And in the weeks and months ahead, uh, we will give you more details uh, in terms of just how we're going to go about that with the building fund and what we plan to do. Um, But again, our commitment is to you guys, which means our commitment is to this area way more than our commitment is to having our own building. Does that make sense? So just wanted to share that because I noticed that we're pretty full today and most of you, most of our church family are here or live streaming. So I wanted to share that. I've been wanting to share that for a while. And again, more details will come. But for now, just pray. Well, it was shortly after I got saved that I joined a youth group that I actually got saved at. And it was one of those church youth retreats. You're familiar with them as a bunch of junior hires and high schoolers. And a lot of times you kick off these retreats or every session with fun games, various types of kitty-type relay races, right? There's this, the spoon in your mouth with an egg. There's different types of things, potato sack races, things like that. And I remember one particular race that we had. Basically, two of the bigger individuals in the youth group would lock arms, something like this. I would put my hand on the shoulder Another person put his hand on his shoulder, creating basically a seat between our arms. Then you would find someone smaller on your team to sit in that seat with the legs over to the side, and there was some sort of race. Well, we figured out that we could run faster if the girl who was sitting between our arms did not sit with her legs over, but actually straddled our arms. And indeed, we ran faster than every other group. And then there was a little bump in the road, and we had to stop, and we realized quickly why the rules were that they were to sit with their legs over. She flew over one of our heads, landed on her chin on that short industrial carpet, split it open, and started gushing blood everywhere. Nobody noticed... Or when they did notice, nobody said, hey, you can't do that. you got to follow the rules. Everything looked good from the outside, but by not following a simple rule, I'm guessing these people just found this in a, in a fun kids' games book. There was no internet back then. And they didn't really know why the rules were what they were. They just knew there were rules. And so no one said anything. It looked fine. We were running. We were playing the game. But then someone got hurt. I believe she still has a scar there and had to get several stitches. As we continue our study of what an elder should be, there are many people who are elders or look like elders or are potential elders, and they look good from the outside. And based on what people see and based on what people experience at church or even sitting in their home for dinner or for a meal or for a visit, Everything looks fine from the outside. But inside, there may just be one little rule that they are not following. And it may not be them. It may not be their family. But somebody eventually is going to get hurt. And this is why it is so important that when it comes to the leadership of the church, we follow what God has demanded and clearly outlined for us a couple places in the Scriptures, but for our purposes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. And This morning in part 4 of God's Man for the Church, we finish up this passage, but I'd like you to follow along as I read it in its entirety. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, 
so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This morning we cover verses 6 and 7 and bring this series, this study to a close as we look at the last two moral qualifications, the characteristics needed for someone who desires the office of overseer. Now the second to last qualification that we see here in verse 6 is that the elder cannot be a new convert, simply meaning he should not be someone who was recently saved, not a new Christian, not someone who became a Christian recently. The word new convert in the Greek means newly planted and was literally used of a tree that was freshly planted. If you are a gardener of any sort, you know that when you go out and you go to Home Depot and you buy a little tree, you pop it out of the the little plastic container it has and put it in your garden, it needs extra care. It is more susceptible to die. It is more susceptible to uh, overwatering, underwatering until it establishes its roots. Now, this is a great description, the tree of any Christian. The picture of the tree, grafting, branches, fruit, all pictures used by Jesus Christ of the believer. Now, it says that an elder cannot be a new convert. Ultimately, what this is calling for is not length of time. Someone doesn't get saved and you put an X on your calendar and wait a certain number of days and then boom, he can be an elder. What this is calling for is spiritual maturity. As with the word elder itself, we know the word elder does not mean that elders in the church have to be older in age. So this is not saying that the position of elder can only be given to those who are physically older because only those who are physically older are spiritually mature enough. We understand that people get saved at different times in their lives. And so someone who is very socially mature, accomplished in their business, whatever it may be, but gets saved at 70, they are still a new convert. They are spiritually immature. And so spiritual maturity is not limited to those who are older in years. You know from experience there are many young men and women who are much more spiritually mature than Christians who are older than them and vice versa. There are people who are saved for five years who are much more spiritually mature than those who have been saved for 30. There are a lot of factors. We also know people who are socially immature for their age. And although social maturity is not what we're talking about, there is a part of spiritual maturity that will go hand in hand with social maturity. For example... Someone who is not going to be considered spiritually mature, someone is not, rather, going to be considered spiritually mature if they are five years out of college, refuse to get a job, and just live off of their parents. Because spiritual maturity would dictate that they would act like an adult and be a responsible member of society and the church. There are, of course, those who would be admired in society and thus considered culturally refined and socially mature, yet because of their feeble faith and problematic priorities, are not spiritually mature. There is, when it talks about not being a new convert, there is a nod to experience here. Not only life experience, but of course church and ministry experience. This kind of experience, again, is not limited to men who are older, And spiritual maturity does not always increase correspondingly with how long they are serving in the church. This is going to deepen with greater speed and breadth based on a variety of factors, including humility and teachability, involvement, doctrinal purity, selflessness. The kind of experience that is important for the elder involves the truths of Scripture the things of God, and a love for people. What Paul is prohibiting here involves length of time as a believer. 
And so quite simply, an elder cannot be a recently converted individual because a recently converted individual would not have all the things that we've talked about already. The kind of maturity that we want in an elder will not be achieved in a new believer regardless of how intensely they serve or devour the Scriptures and biblical material. But if you look at the rest of the verse, you will see that there is a specific reason an elder cannot be a new convert. Let me read that for you. So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now we understand that pride is one of the besetting sins of mankind. I invite you to turn towards the end of your Bibles to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The lead-in, the context of this verse, is talking about the world and not loving the things of the world. John then lists the three overarching sins. It can be argued that every other sin in life comes out of or is a form of these three. All that is in the world, he says, 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, those are different. The lust of the flesh relates to sexual immorality. The lust of the eyes can be stuff, popularity, money. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Keep your finger there. We'll get back to 1 John 2 in a second. Now, when we look back at the verse, Paul uses the word conceited to describe the potential pitfall of the elder or the would-be elder. It literally means to puff up. We talk about this. When you talk about someone who is proud, we use that same illustration, being puffed up. Someone who is put into a position of authority, power, and respect too soon is prone to get puffed up to get conceited. The Greek word can also mean wrapped in smoke, which also gives us a great picture of the dangers that Paul is warning about. To get so proud that he is blinded by his own arrogance that he can't see where he's going or what he's doing or the damage he is doing, so he slips and falls. Just as someone who is physically enveloped in smoke or gets smoke in his eyes has a hard time seeing. This does not mean that a more mature person who becomes an elder will never get proud. Certainly, anyone in that position, or any position for that matter, can become arrogant. But the new convert is especially susceptible to this, and I believe it is best explained by 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 where John writes, says he's writing to all believers. All of these people he's about to describe are Christians, but Christians in different phases of their spiritual maturity. He says, I am writing to you, little children. You understand this is not physically little children. This is talking about spiritual maturity, regardless of where they are physically. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is a great picture even as you look at your own family. You look at the people you know in different physical states of maturity. And so here John lays out three different stages of Christian or spiritual maturity. Again, all Christians, but the more immature of believers are called children. He says, you're saved. For God's own glory, for His name's sake, your sins have been forgiven. In relation to their spiritual maturity, though, they're still children These people know the Lord. They are saved. They are no way to be looked down upon. We rejoice over them. But 
they are still greatly susceptible to the deceit of the devil and the temptations of the world. There is need for much spiritual growth. The young men are strong and vibrant. They know sound doctrine, and because of this, they are more prone to stand up against sin and false doctrine. They're more prone to debate and speak up when sin is occurring to confront and explain the Scriptures. Paul says they have overcome, John rather says they have overcome the evil one. Because of their understanding of Scripture, they do not as easily fall prey to the devil's deceit as the children do. The spiritual fathers then are those who are not merely saved and not merely those who understand theology. They have an intimate relationship with God through experience with Him. Spiritual fathers are those who don't just have knowledge of the Scriptures, but they have the wisdom that applies it. And they do so, not as some of the children and young men do because they have to, but because they want to. Because nothing brings them greater pleasure, no matter how hard and uncomfortable it is, than to please their heavenly Father. You see this in your own life in relation to your parents. As a young child, you're just their child. The relationship is one that cannot be broken, but you're just a kid. As a young man or young woman, you understand the rules of the house. You understand where you're, more where your parents are coming from. You know how to play the game to please the parents, even if there's a little bit of selfishness there. And even though you follow the rules out of respect and out of love, there is not this overwhelming desire to do whatever your parents say, even if it seems ridiculous, simply because you adore them. But now you're an adult, and you're on your own. And you go home and you visit your parents. And you see them. And you have lived your life. You have now learned how hard it is to raise children. How hard it is to pay off a mortgage. How hard it is to live life. And no matter how silly the request, you will do it. Because in your maturity, you love your parents You don't wash the dishes because you have to, to get your allowance or to be able to go to the party on Friday night. You do it simply because it pleases your parents. And so the spiritual fathers, they do not debate and defend the Scriptures out of a sense of duty and head knowledge, but out of a deep love of their Heavenly Father to not want anyone to disregard His truth. There's an allegiance to Him that is not not found in the children or the young men. It is these spiritual fathers that we want for elders. Because this kind of relationship with God is soaked in humility and submission to Him. The relationship with God is so profound that the sense of duty has been replaced with a sense of devotion. The use of freedom for self becomes the use of freedom for the sovereign, while the obligation of obedience matures into the wonder of worship. The young man finds his confidence in knowing the Scriptures. The spiritual father finds his joy in knowing the author. The young man knows the commands and finds the loopholes to serve himself. The father knows the loopholes but has no desire for them. It is these spiritual fathers that we want for elders. Look back at 1 Timothy 3. The kind of pride that a new believer can fall into is the same pride that got Satan, an angel of light, kicked out of heaven, not just to become an outcast, not even just to become an enemy, but the enemy. 
Because of his pride, he was condemned. And this means judgment carries the sense of a judicial verdict. In other words, the young in faith elder can fall into the same trap of pride that will lead to a condemnation that Satan himself faced. Throughout the series, I have referred to people who are elders but should not be. One of the prevalent reasons for this is when someone who is wealthy, influential, or successful, when they become a believer, sometimes when they just say, I believe in God, there is a temptation among many churches to make that person an elder simply because of the influence and potential they have. I mean, think about it. I trust that no one in this church would think this way, but indulge me for a second to think of your favorite actor, your favorite athlete, or politician. If they were in this church, if they came to Christ through our church, you could see how appealing it would be. Hey, he got saved. You're going to make him an elder? He's successful in business? We can get him to talk about the gospel in his next post-game interview. Make him an elder. How appealing would it be to put his name and face on our website in the news and in front of the church? Perhaps their expertise in business or government and the need to navigate the world for their personal success can be seen and seen helpful in running the church. But despite their earthly maturity in the realms of social influence and their respective career paths, they are a new believer. They are not qualified to be an elder. Oftentimes, and stereotypically, it is new believers who are the most excited and vocal about their faith. It is the new believers who are going around sharing the gospel with everyone. It is the new believers who can't listen to enough sermons, read enough Bible, get their hands on enough books, attend enough Bible classes. In fact, put them next to a spiritual father who has learned to be patient, discerning, and slow to speak. You would at first glance be more encouraged by the new believer. And again, you can see how someone would say, that guy should be an elder. So again, we are thankful for the Lord's clear direction through these requirements in Scripture. The elder cannot be a new convert for his own sake and the potential falling into the condemnation of the devil. And naturally, if that were to happen, if you were an elder, the repercussions through their church would be also devastating. Now we come to the final qualification of an elder or would-be elder. Look at verse 7, 1 Timothy 3. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The elder's primary responsibilities will be fleshed out in the church among God's people. There is, of course, the call for all Christians to evangelize, and the elder is not exempt simply because he is busy with other ministry. Well, what we see here is another aspect of his ministry to unbelievers. Here, referred to as outsiders or those outside of the church. He's simply talking about non-Christians, the world. Now, there is much in the New Testament regarding the Christian's ministry to the unbeliever. And one of the things we must understand is that the whole world is watching and that there is an important need to be constantly aware of their need for Jesus Christ. And as Christ's representatives here on earth, we cannot, we must not only pinpoint certain people at our work who we want to evangelize or bring to church. We must see every activity we engage in as given to us for the purpose of worship and service, even if that service is to unbelievers. Christian, you must get out of the thinking that when you are at work, you are just at work. God gave you that job, 
and those coworkers and that manager and that boss and that partner and the location of that very cubicle. He has sovereignly made you choose that kitchen over the further kitchen, this bathroom over the one downstairs for the sake of his glory and your impact on the world. You can't compartmentalize your life or just say, yeah, my manager seems to be open to Christianity. That's the one I want to be a testimony to. In other words, you need to drive on the road, work at your job, play on your vacation, dine in the restaurant in a way that does not compartmentalize your life such that you think those are times when you can turn off. We must be like those soldiers the American soldiers who walk around in uniform, walking around knowing that everyone sees they are soldiers, they are representing their government, they are representing the military branch that their clothing represents. Everyone knows it, everyone sees it, and so there is a pressure to act like it. We are not to live our lives only wearing the uniform at church or with certain non-Christians that we want to bring to the Lord, we are to be on all the time. Though it is hard work, it is not like a job in which you clock in, and during those eight or nine hours, you have to keep your mind alert for the corporate mindset. This is Christianity. This is a relationship with God. You should not have to turn it on or off. You should not be able to turn it on or off. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. This is a familiar passage to all of us. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the most well-known concepts of Christianity is that of salt and light. But look at the passage again. We are not salt and light of the church. We are not salt and light of each other. We are the salt of the earth and light of the world. Let the world See your good works. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's where we have two passages where we get that phrase, excel still more. In verses 9 through 10 of 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you, need no, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are, all, who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. There it is, the first one. Excel still more in loving each other. Then we read on. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And it's in that context that we get another excel still more. A reputation towards outsiders, unbelievers. Colossians 4, 5 and 6, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to res- you should respond to each person. When it comes to elders, before we move on, I do want to point out that this is the last qualification. 
understand that the Scriptures were written by God Himself. There is a reason that this is last. It is not least important. It is not unimportant. They are all important. They are all necessary. But it is an important one because it deals with this overall reputation and testimony, which means this deals with the entirety of who he is. In other words, this encompasses everything else that we've already seen in 1 Timothy 3. But the elders' priority remains the church. And I make this distinction, not to to undermine what is said here in verse 7, but because there are Christians, elders and laymen, who focus so much on their unbelieving family and friends that they neglect the church. For some, it's a preference to spend time with unbelievers. They defend this, sometimes truthfully and sometimes with a bit of a stretch of the truth by saying that they are evangelizing. For others, it is a misguided heart, albeit sensitive and kind, that so desires the gospel to be spread that they neglect their own family, the church. There must be a proper balance. But now to the verse, let's unpack it. He says, have a good reputation. This ultimately means the word we like to use, Testimony. Having a good testimony. Understand when you pick apart that word testimony in the Greek, it refers to a judgment passed on you by others, whether negative or positive. Here, of course, it is a positive reputation. The elder is to be judged to have a positive impact and testimony with those outside of the church. Now, to have a good reputation means simply to be thought well of others or to be thought well of by others. They may disagree with the elder in regard to the beliefs and his theology, but they appreciate the outworking of his beliefs. Even if they do not realize that the Christian is honest, morally pure, patient, avoids foul language, and has integrity because of those very beliefs that they disagree with. The world will, for the most part, not agree with the elders' theology, but they cannot deny the indisputable proof that he is a man of integrity and morality. And this goes full circle to the necessity of the Christian serving the world. How can the elder impact society if society does not respect him, cannot trust him to be honest or level-headed rather than unreliable and a hothead. Time after time, even the most wicked of sinners, when in desperate straits, will turn to the church and its leaders for help. When secular therapists and psychiatrists prove to be unhelpful, I have heard of dozens of unbelievers who turn to the church. I have heard of pioneers in the gay community, idols, heroes in the LGBT movement because of their sacrifice and trailblazing on their deathbeds. One particular one I was thinking of was dying of AIDS. And in his final moments, did not tell his friends, I want to speak to the person who's going to take over whom I'm passing the torch, not to liberal politicians to encourage them to carry on, not to former partners, but to a pastor. I want to speak to that pastor. And we can see that the far too often used excuse that their faith makes them rude and inconsiderate because of the sinfulness of those they are rude and considerate to is simply not a biblical excuse. It is invalid. We must be careful, friends. Within the church, we are patient with one another. We are forgiving. We are forbearing such that your behavior and manners may be tolerated among us, but are vile and off-putting 
in society. Be aware of your reputation with those outside of the church. It is not enough for any Christian to only be thought well of among Christians. You understand this does not mean you capitulate on your morality and your adherence to the Bible. It is through your commitment to God and the Scriptures that will lead to a love and a politeness and a kindness and a servant's attitude even to those who by His own words declare they hate your Savior. When it comes to the elder and his role as a leader and thus a representative of the church, he must have a solid reputation. As you know, in a few weeks here, I am embarking on an intense elder training program with some of the men here in this church. And we will go over what an elder is biblically. We will go over lots and lots and lots of theology. We will go over a lot of philosophy of ministry. I will get into their lives to talk about their deepest sins, their relationships with their girlfriends, their wives. But I also want to know what their neighbors think of him. I want to know what his coworkers and clients think of him. I want to know what his boss thinks of him, his unbelieving family, his Uber driver, his barber, his healthcare professionals. Again, this is not a list of people that the elder must take pains to impress for the sake of the gospel. This is about the elder simply being who he truly is such that he lives out his faith both inside and outside of the church. In other words, this comes down to genuine Christianity. Is he just playing the part or even hiding among the community of saints? Or is he truly what he claims to be? And if he truly is what he claims to be, then there is no need to be overly concerned with his reputation because it's just going to happen. I've said it before. Your testimony is not something you need to try to work on. Focus on your love and worship of God. Develop a high view of God and a proper view of sin, and your testimony will naturally follow. You reverse that, and pretty soon things will go really, really badly for you. For all of us, we have two priorities as Christians. Serve God, number one. Number two, serve God's people, and then the world. When you reverse those, and your number one priority, even if it's ministry, even if it's evangelizing, pretty soon you won't be serving God. Serve God and serve His people, and your testimony will naturally flow out. And so you can see how this qualification is not something to strive for or manipulate, to put on some sort of facade. It is simply a gauge of whether or not the previous 14 qualifications exist in this man. When you understand how one's reputation is directly connected with genuine faith and godliness, then you get the final part of the verse, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Reproach means disgrace, which is what the ESV and NIV say, but it is deep disgrace. This is not unjustified disgrace and insults like what Christ endured. Those were unjustified. This is talking about justified disgrace as a result of a loss of credibility because of bad behavior. That bad behavior leads to a tarnished reputation in the world. And this situation then invites scorn and insults from others. The ultimate result then is that this person falls into the devil's trap. And unlike what we saw in verse 6, the condemnation incurred by the devil, which refers to the condemnation the devil faced or endured, the snare that is being spoken of here, the snare or trap, 
is a trap that the devil puts out for the followers of Christ. A snare is an animal trap, particularly for birds. It is different than actively chasing or pursuing in the sense of chasing your prey. A snare is put where the bird may walk and follows and falls into it on his own. The picture then is the devil setting these traps all around such that any misstep of the overseer will land him into the snare. So unlike the trap for the bird, this is not a trap that will catch you if you walk where you are supposed to walk, but one false move off the proper path of biblical servitude and godliness, and you're snagged by the devil's snare. What are some of the snares that the devil sets out for elders and all of God's people, for that matter? Well, the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 helps us see many of them. Money, pride, women, ambition, anger, vengeance, violence. All the qualifications of an elder when not met are snares of the devil. Now we see again how the reputation of a Christian is not about trying to have a good reputation before others, but simply a holiness before God. Because that is the solution to avoid these snares, to simply walk on the straight and narrow. The snares are full when the qualifications of the elder are not met. Now, it can be argued that these snares are more actively set for the leaders of God's people. We are in a war, and that's just good warfare tactics. Attack the leader. Bomb headquarters. Take out their general. And this is a good reminder, on a side note, of how we are to bathe church leaders in prayer. It is the generals and the masterminds of the war that are most protected behind walls and other soldiers. At the same time, he must be smart and aware so that he protects himself. And these same principles apply to the elders of a church. He must, as we have seen over these past four weeks, be wise and aware such that he protects himself. But the army around him must protect and guard, and they do so primarily through prayer. As I have mentioned before, Attack and criticism most often come from within the elders' own ranks. There's just something about a pastor or any leader that wants us to listen to and agree with criticism about him. Think of how you view your boss versus your coworkers. If that same criticism was directed at anyone else in the church, we would refute. We would push back. We would say, I don't think that's true. We want to be a wall and a protection for our friends when the attacks come. But for some reason, when the attacks come for the pastor or the elder, some prefer to step aside and let them through and sometimes even give them an encouraging push. It's part and parcel of being an elder. Frankly, I've encountered what I just described just this past week. And perhaps every month I've been in ministry. It is a reality. But in the end, as with all of you, there is an accountability to God that lands squarely on the shoulders of one person, and that is you, that is me, oneself. No matter what people accuse you of, no matter what temptations they put in your way, you are ultimately responsible for your own walk. Don't blame others. Don't blame the teaching. Definitely don't blame the devil. It is you. It is your heart. It is your love of sin. Be honest. The first step in winning a battle is being honest. You don't blind yourself and say, nah, they're weak, we'll beat them. You're realistic about the enemy, and the realistic aspect of sin is that we all enjoy it. That's why we do it. Be real. And so love God and His Word and obedience to Him that that pleasure of sin becomes pain and discomfort. For the elder, once again, same standard, higher accountability. It is a role that must be taken seriously 
with a commitment and depth of worship that is only possible through God in partnership with a commitment and very hard work. Because it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done in raising up godly men. In your church around the world, Lord, raise up more. In our church, Lord, We need more godly men to be elders. Raise them up. Give them the desire. Help them to see the truth of the Scriptures, that it is a good and fine work. And may they seek that. May they seek the title of slave for your glory, the glory of the Master. Continue to grow our church. Use us. Help us to be a biblical church not just in how we preach and how we obey the Scriptures, but even in our form and our exemplifying biblical church government. We desire to honor you, Lord. And outside of elders and those who desire to be elders, may all of these qualifications that we have seen be characterizations of all believers that they would desire specifically to love you so much that if their friends from outside come to church, they don't see someone different, but their reputation stands firm and consistent. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close.